Okay, it's very, very nice to be here. I've just literally got the train up from the London Buddhist Centre uh, in Bethnal Green. And I was really struck just coming into uh, the building. Um, it's like coming home. And yet I've just sort of come all the way up here to Manchester. Uh, and meet, and um, Amala kindly came to meet me at the station. It's just very lovely. It's like just coming home. Um, and that's part of the vision of our movement, uh, our spiritual movement, the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order and Community, is it really is a community stretching between continents, stretching across the whole world, so that you can fly to one place, uh, you can get a train to somewhere and, and still be at home. I don't know, I was, very, I was just felt very struck by that, just, just being here. Anyway, I'm not talking about that. Um, so, um, yeah, I want to talk about the imagination. Um, in a way, the word talk for this talk is a little bit too grand. That's what it looks like. And... Uh, <laughs> So if you want the notes afterwards, there you go. Um, I hope I've got more to say than, than that. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, it's kind of me, it's kind of me just talking um, about the imagination primarily, the difference between imagination and fantasy. Um, and then I'll leave time. I'll stop at some point, possibly not at the end of the talk, but I will stop you know, uh, and let you go home. And. Um, uh, hopefully there'll be time, time for some questions. Yeah? Okay, so I want to start by uh, reading a poem by Ted Hughes. Uh, it's a very famous poem called The Thought Fox. Does everybody, anyone know it? Yeah, it's one person. <laughs> um, so it's not that famous. <laughs> um, Hughes wrote it he, after quite a long period where he couldn't write, he couldn't find anything to write. And... Um, he said the poem just appeared to him and he just wrote it down and didn't change hardly a word. Hughes is, uh, Ted Hughes often actually didn't redraft, he didn't believe in it, he just thought if the moment was there you just wrote from it and that was it. Um, sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes that's not a good thing. I wouldn't advise you to copy him in that, but anyway. So I want to read this poem and, and, and this poem, in a way my talk is something of a sort of exploration of this poem and thereby an exploration of imagination. Yeah. and we'll see how we go The Thought Fox I imagine this midnight moment's forest something else is alive besides the clock's loneliness and this blank page where my fingers move Through the window I see no star something more near though deeper within darkness is entering the loneliness, cold, delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig, leaf, two eyes serve a movement that now, and again now, and now, and now, set neat prints into the snow between trees, and warily a lame shadow lags by stump and in hollow of a body that is bold to come across clearings, an eye, a widening, deepening greenness, brilliantly, concentratedly coming about its own business, till, with a sudden sharp, hot stink of fox, it enters the dark hole of my head. The window is starless still. The clock ticks. The page is printed.
Yeah, so that's the Thought Fox by Ted Hughes. And in a way, it strikes me as a, um, a poem about the nature of imagination. And uh, one of the things I want to do is explore the poem and see how it is a, uh, a poem about the nature of imagination. Uh, and I'll draw things from it as we go on. Um, but, you know, just to look at the first two lines, I imagine this midnight's moment's forest. So we've got the poet here writing, <laughs> writing on his pad uh, at, at, at night, but then something else is alive besides the clock's loneliness. <coughs> it's interesting that the clock is lonely, uh, so there's al- already a reflection on time, the tedium of time, the, the, the fact that we live in time. Uh, and then he talks about this blank page uh, where my fingers move. So something else is alive. And I think it's interesting that he says, but through the window I see no star. So I take that to mean, or I take that to be thinking of divinity or God. So when I look through the window, I see no star. In other words, there's nothing celestial. So when I say something else is alive, it's not not something celestial. It's not to do with the stars. It's not to do with uh, the spheres, the sort of of planetary spheres from Christianity. Um, he says, through the window I see no star, something more near, very odd way of putting that, more than something nearer, something more near, um, though deeper within darkness. So there's a darkness that's surrounding the poet, and there's something more near, though deeper within that darkness, uh, that is entering the loneliness, presumably the clock's loneliness. Then cold, delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig, leaf. I mean, that's beautiful. Beautiful. You suddenly see the fox, don't you? Suddenly, as it says, as delicately, delicately as a dark snow. You can really feel, see the, the, that beautiful um, fox's nose just touch a leaf, um, a twig. That now and again, now and now and now sets prints into the snow. And what Hugh seems to be doing there, he's already talked about the loneliness of the clock, hasn't he? Uh, he's already looked out of the window and said, it's not, this, this aliveness I'm feeling has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the angelic hierarchy, but something that's alive that now and now and now. So he's talking about direct experience now. It's not some sort of abstraction. It's now in this deeper uh, darkness. Something now and now and now sets neat prints into the snow. So whatever it is that's alive is going to imprint itself. Um, the snow is, is, is obviously also an image, isn't it? A sort of, of receptivity, a sort of virgin receptivity. Uh, and the fox's um, feet will print into that. Um, and then later on it says, um, a wide, the, the, it describes the fox, fox as coming brilliantly, concentratedly, coming about its own business. Yeah. Um, so you've got these were brilliant, uh, the fox at night, but concentratedly, and he describes the fox's eye as a widening, deepening greenness. Um, and it's very interesting that it's coming about its own business. So it's nothing to do with the poet. So he's already said, I'm sitting here, um, I'm writing on this blank page. Blank is an important word because the blank of the page relates to the blank of the snow. Um, clock's ticking and I'm stuck in time with the clock I, that's how I read it um, there's nothing celestial going on but I feel something alive in this darkness um, 
And that is suddenly conjured into the poem as being a fox. Um, you see the fox moving through the snow outside. And he's coming about its own business, brilliantly, concentratedly. So it's not to do with the poet. Um, and then it says, Till with a, sudden, with a sudden sharp hot stink of fox, it enters the dark hole of the head. Um, interesting, isn't it, a way of thinking of that your head is a dark hole. But the fox that he's conjured up so brilliantly outside with that stink of fox. You, I don't know whether you've ever gone, taken your dog's walk and they roll in fox dirt. It's an incredible stink. Um, they come up to you and say, whoa! We used to have to ho- hose our Alsatians down in the yard and they'd stand trembling because you couldn't let them in the house and get rid of this awful stink. So this sharp stink of a fox is something very, very strong. And, and smells for me are often to do with atmosphere aren't they? It's amazing how atmospheric a smell can be. Um, you know, that sometimes I remember going back to my old school, just a smell. The whole of my school life came back just with that smell of a school, which seemed to have their own smell, or the smell of ha- the, that cabbage smell in, in hallways, uh, and so evocative. Creates a whole kind of world, doesn't it? Um, and the hot stink of a fox, but that hot stink enters... Uh, the dark hole of the head. Interestingly, I misread it when I read it. Uh, I said the hot dark hole of my head. That's what I'd want to say if I was writing it. But he says the head. So I think he's probably doing that as to say, this isn't a confessional poem, so I'm not, in a way, particularly talking about me. I'm just talking about the head, not my head. It would be quite different if he said it enters the dark hole of my head. That suddenly makes it, this is something to do with me. So he's already said that the fox is coming about... I hadn't meant to say any of this. <laughs> it's not in my notes. Anyway, never mind. Uh, he's already said, hasn't he, that the fox is coming about its own business. So if he'd said, in, enter into my head, that suggests that the fox is interested in him. Do you see what I mean? But it just says, the hole in the head, in the dark hole in the head. Very, very interesting, I think. I hadn't noticed that before. <laughs> um, I'm an extrovert, so I think out loud. I need a room full of people in front of me to think. Um, (laughs) Sometimes people really regret that. Anyway, um, (laughs) sometimes I do. Um, And then, so it enters this this atmosphere, this sharp stink of fox enters uh, the dark hole of the head, which is our head, uh, uh, our head. It's the poet's head, but it's our head. And then he says, interestingly, the window is starless still. So he seems to me to be emphasising, I'm not talking here about some kind of literal divine thing. It's not an angel that he's imagined into the darkness. Um, It's not even a fox, obviously, because it's the stink that has entered his head. Um, He's trying to say, I think, that... Don't don't get me wrong, just be clear, there's, there's no stars suddenly appeared in the window here. There's no divine transformation. We're not somewhere else now. And yet, somehow, we are. And he says the clock ticks. So, time seems still to be happening. And yet, you feel, don't you, when you read the poem, that time is somehow suspended. That now, and now, and now. That, that uh, repetition of that. There are three nows there. And again, now. No, there's four. And that now, and again, now, and now, and now. Somehow suspends time. But as it were, the clock's time continues... It's not a literal suspension of time, even. It's not that the clock stops, the clock, the clock ticks. And then the very, very famous last line, the page is printed. So you get to the end of the poem, 
the poet has evoked um, this this aliveness, and it's that aliveness that's come into the poem and created the poem. The page is printed. This wonderful last line because it, it perfectly unifies the act of writing with the fox walking across the snow, the blank of the page with the blank of the snow. Um, so, and he wrote that in just one um, uh, inspiration. Um, uh, it's been anthologized again and again. Actually, I've never talked about it at length, but I'm glad I have now. <laughs> um, so yeah, the other page is printed. So this animating presence that he hasn't conjured up, he's found in the darkness, that's found him, actually. It's interesting that the, the fox is coming about his own business. I think that's very, very important. And the fox has found him. He hasn't found the fox, in a way. It's the fox that's been coming. He hasn't said... Uh, and I'm thinking about a fox, or I'll conjure up a fox. The fox has found him, entered into his head, and between them, miraculously, the page is printed. So I think, in a way, if if you look at it like that, I hadn't meant to do that, but if you do look at it like that, you see a kind of essay on the nature of imagination. Everything I want to say about imagination, effectively, I hadn't realized it until I explored it a bit more. I wasn't going to, but... Now that I explore it more, everything I want to say about the imagination is in that poem. Um, it is a poem about the nature of imagination. Hi there, there's a seat here at the front if you sit on a seat. So the main thing I want to say about imagination, uh, so if you don't remember any of my other points, uh, just as the main point, is that imagination always goes somewhat beyond you. Yeah? In a way, that's a crucial point about imagination, uh, that when something is genuinely an act of imagination, it always goes beyond you. And I want to explore what that might mean. Um, let's just make a few other things clear whilst I'm on the subject. So uh, imagination is a tricky word, a bit like spiritual is a tricky word, or indeed religion. In fact, most words are tricky when you look at them, but imagination is a tricky word in very little is, uh, is, is left of what Coleridge meant by imagination. Uh, he was trying to use it as a, a way of exploring, I think, what Hughes is exploring here. Uh, it's come to mean, people often say oh, that's just your imagination. It's come to mean something really, I think, quite trivial and quite debased. It's become part of the entertainment industry. Um, it's become something... Um, that sort of adds a kind of flourish on top of things. Um, sometimes when people are being so-called imaginative, actually they're not being imaginative at all. It's just the same old thing with a kind of outlandish outfit, you know, a sort of silly hat and a red nose, um, carrying a pair of novelty boxer shorts or something like that. You know, it's just a sort of, it's just a sort of, you know, sort of gag. I'll, I'll say more about that in a second. Um, <coughs> So, let, so when I'm talking about imagination, we need to hold the word fairly lightly. Um, it, 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 it has been very debased, and I mean something, and I think Hughes means something very profound by it. Actually, when you read Hughes' poem, it's a very profound poem, um, as Hughes' his best is. Actually, Hughes risks being profound. Nowadays, poets often won't risk that, but Hughes risks being profound. Um, so he means something profound by imagination, so do I, and, I, and my, this talk is coming out of my understanding, particularly of Bante Sangarachita's 
teaching on imagination and Sabuti's exploration of that more recently. So let's be clear what imagination is. Let, let's hold it lightly. You could call it just X. And also, whilst we talk about X that we're calling imagination, let's not get too fixated on art. Um, I'm a bit of an arty person, um, as, as, as you know. Um, but um, imagination is the area of life that... Sorry, uh, um, the arts is the area of life that is usually talked about in terms of imagination. It's probably the easiest area of life to talk about the imagination relationship to. And also, I'm temperamentally rather... Uh, bias in that way um, but imagination isn't really to do with the arts I mean a lot of the arts simply aren't imagination at all um, it, it also includes the best of science it includes but mathematics uh, imagination includes um, the whole I think of spiritual life and it includes um, well, any, any, any worthwhile endeavour by anyone uh, whether it's you deciding to be a bit friendly to somebody on the train rather than unfriendly. That itself is an act of imagination. Um, human beings are imagination, or at least could be. Uh, and in a way, one of the main things I want to stress in the talk is that um, our, one of our great tasks in life is to discover the imagination, whatever that means, yet yeah, we still haven't completely clear about it, to... Um, uh, unleash it and to become more and more a living act of imagination whether that's imagining the reality of others imagining other life apart from your own imagining um, seeing the thought fox appearing in your mind um, they're all acts of imagination in a way human beings are kind of um, an instant of imo- imagination at least at best they're a kind of um, they're a kind of embodying of imagination. Um, so let's not get too hooked up on art, even though that's what I'm, I use as my, my reference, uh, particularly poetry, because I've been reading a lot of poetry um, and writing poetry. Um, but that's not important whether you do that or not. What's important is not whether you um, paint pictures or write poems, but whether you um, find the imagination and... Uh, explore it and develop it. I think that's also true of even things like administrational work, uh, running a centre and so on. They're all acts of imagination. Gosh, I've gone on already too long. So, um, just as, and one other caveat is to make the distinction between fancy or fantasy and imagination. Um, so Coleridge um, can contrasts imagination with fancy, uh, as he calls it. Actually, I think there's more to say about fancy or fantasy. Um, but a simple way of um, talking about the difference between imagination and fancy is in, is in fancy, for Coleridge's point of view, nothing new comes into the work. Nothing new appears in you. It's the same old you. And, as I think Iggy Pop said, it's the same old whatever in brand new drag. I can't remember it. The same old you in brand new drag. So fancy is just if it's a poet, it's the same old poet, but with an outlandish costume on and a, a big hat. Um, and they usually write poems about underarm deodorants and zebras and oranges and mix all that together. And you think that's very imaginative. Do you see what I mean? Um, because it's got imagination written on everything. So this is very imaginative. Um, in rituals, sometimes people decide to do an imaginative ritual. And uh, sometimes they, they're, they're 
they have that same quality of everything has to be imaginative, and it's not really imaginative at all, it's just sort of fanciful. So in fancy, um, all that's happening is you're getting the same things and putting them together in an unusual and arbitrary order, which gives it a bit of a woo, but it doesn't have any deeper coherence. Especially nothing new comes into it. Uh, nothing is discovered. Nothing is new is, is unearthed. It's just, you kind of put lots of things in a liquidizer, in a sort of throw them on and pour them into a different mould and hope that that will do it. You know? no, nothing genuinely new has come out. So a lot of what we call imagination really is fancy, in Coleridge's terms, or fantasy. Um, also, it strikes me that... Um, imagination, and especially the arts, because the arts, unfortunately, has got this kind of kudos, hasn't it? Um, and that's, in many ways, not a good thing. It would be better if the arts were on the same sort of playing field as, um, as football. Well, I'm on a playing field. <laughs> or, um, and science, and, uh, I don't know, um, as I say, administrational work. Um, that it's a job of work, and, uh, and so on, yeah. Um, yeah, so let's um, remember, try to remember sort of all that. So I just want to go through how many metaphors. I've got six metaphors. Yeah. Um, the metaphor of otherness. Oop, hello. Sorry to interrupt you yeah, at go this on. point, but you mentioned the contrast between imagination and fantasy by Coleridge, but could you elaborate a bit more on what he defines by imagination? In a way, the, the, these four metaphors are my attempt to do that. Um, Yes, on my attempt to do that, I hope. Let's see. <laughs> Ask me again at the end. Could you define what you meant by it? You said you were going to. Um, oh, yes, that's what I was going to say. That fan- imagination as fancy easily just becomes a per- part of your. Oh, that's right. I was halfway through a sentence, wasn't I? I knew hard that I was halfway through. Um, so um, ima- uh, I was saying that um, the arts can become. A, they've got this sort of kudos, haven't they? Um, so it's well known, for instance, that artists uh, rent studios and never go to them. There's lots of blocks of studios where people rent them at quite high cost but don't go. It's a very well-known phenomena. And it's because you hope that by getting a studio that will make you paint. Uh, but you, you just don't. Um, anyway, it costs you a lot of money. But people are obviously doing that because they're really hooked into the kudos of being an artist. Um, even so much they'll spend money on a studio even though they're not doing anything. Um, so um, sometimes I think art, the arts, can just become part of your personal style. I've got a friend of mine who's a surfer, and he, you know, he, he, he's got three surfboards, he, he wears kind of surfy clothes, he has those trousers that don't seem to stay up very easily, miraculous trousers, uh, he has sort of billy-bong things, and, you know, um, there's a whole sort of surf style. Actually, he's not that much like that. But, you know, you can then imagine going to surfy cafes, having a certain, one of those little thinny, thinny dreadlock things down the back, uh, always having a slight tan. Um, <laughs> it's just a kind of style thing, isn't it? You know, you're a sort of surfy kind of person. And art can be like that as well. It's just part of your personal style. So you do paintings and write little poems and, and sort of wear a cravat. And it's just part of your personal style, yeah? Um, but it's nothing, that's nothing to do with imagination, yeah? nothing to do with imagination at all. And often if, if art is rather obviously part of someone's personal style, I think it's a bad sign. Uh, all the people I've looked up to in, as artists and writers are just sort of very, very ordinary and you know, they haven't got time to make it part of their personal style. 
Okay, let's go look at these promised six metaphors, and I'll try and be fairly brief. So, I want to talk about the metaphor of otherness, the metaphor of aliveness, the metaphor of discovery, the metaphor of play, the metaphor of unity, and the metaphor of ascent. And I'm doing all this because in my mind is a sort of aphorism by Bhante where he once said, Bhante Sankaracha, the founder of our movement, once said that if we were to look for um, predecessors to Buddhism in the West, it would be better to look to the arts rather than to look to religion as being the sort of ground in which Buddhism arises from. So in other words, it's got more in common with the arts than it has with uh, religion. Um, even with my caveats to that. So by the arts, Bhante means, Sangharachita means this enlivened imagination. So the first thing is, th- is this metaphor of otherness. So you've got that in the poem, uh, that the, the, the thought fox is coming about its own business. Um, it's not to do with you. In other words, in, essentially something unwilled enters the picture. Something <coughs> unwilled enters you. And this can be in a meditation, in a communication it can be in something that you're writing, it can just be in your being, that some new element comes in which you haven't willed into being. Yeah? So, um, it's interesting that in the poem he just says, I imagine this midnight moment's forest. So he's just imagining this world, and something steps into that world, literally. Um, something new comes in, something that you haven't willed into being. Yeah? Um, it's the new, it's the genuinely new, the unlooked for, the unwilled. Yeah? Imagination, genuine imagination, always has that sense. And that's often experienced as literally coming from outside. Uh, Hughes in the poem tries to tread a, a path between saying it literally comes out from outside and it's something I've imagined. So he starts with I imagine. So in that he's saying, this is me imagining. But he loses that, doesn't he, as he goes on, and actually the, the fox just appears. Uh, until it goes into his head. Um, he's trying to tread this path between a literal other and, and uh, just the imagination. And Buddhism is trying to tread exactly that path, that we're not saying it isn't stars, there's not a God literally out there, but neither is it you. It's not just you finding a deeper you, not even in that psychological sense. It's not a kind of depth psychology. Buddhism isn't a depth psychology. It's trying to say that in experience itself, built into experience itself, is something other than you, something more than you, something which, if it steps into you, uh, prints the page, creates something fully new. Yeah? Um, it's not the stars, the, the window is cloudless still. Um, interesting as well, it's very important that Hughes stresses that it's natural. Um, it's not an angel, it's not some kind of just like a ghost, uh, it's a natural thing. Something else is alive. Um, it's something natural, it's deeper in darkness, so it's mysterious, but it's alive. And it's alive in nature, in Hughes' poem, isn't it? It's not um, outside of nature, in supernature, like God. And he's quite explicitly, he's quite explicitly said that, hasn't he? That it's not, uh, it's not outside nature, because there's no stars, yeah? It's alive in nature, um, and it steps into you. It's a, the hot, with a sharp, hot stink of fox, it steps into the youth's atmosphere, um, which you want to call something like the divine, steps into you. Um, 
It's n- and the thing to really notice in, in Hughes and in Buddhism is it's not literally other and it's not literally you. But something new arises, yeah? something unwilled. Yeah? So that's the first thing you could... That's in a way the defining stamp of imagination. Some new thing arises. Yeah? And then I want to explore, just briefly talk about the metaphor of aliveness. Um, so when something... Um, when the imagination steps into experience... Uh, p- things become more alive. There's a, um, a sudden access of energy. Now this is, for those of you who meditate, it's very, very obvious when this happens in meditation. You know, you're just sort of thinking, you're just doing that sort of tumble-dryer mind, and then goes round, and there's a 50-pence piece, in it. You know, that's so often what our mind is. And sometimes, um, I don't know, you just sort of say, you just sort of just something happens. You might say something to yourself, or just go back to the breath, and suddenly that mind goes quiet, and something new arises, um, and you're much you're suddenly more alive. In fact, you're suddenly genuinely alive. Um, and this is also true of imagination in any kind of art. When the thought fox enters the dark hole of your head, um, the page is printed. Something lives, and when this is what you, you can experience very strongly when you have a decent reading of a poem or a, a good listening to a concert or a, a good film. You feel that the thing itself is alive from its own side, don't you? You feel that something of the um, aliveness of a subject has been impregnated into the object. I remember seeing a, a carving by Michelangelo of uh, Brutus's head uh, in Florence. And it's quite a rough carving. I don't even know whether Michelangelo would have thought it was finished. But I looked at it and you, it wasn't just an object anymore. Uh, there were lots of objects, but it, you couldn't reduce it to an object. There was something, as it were, alive about it. It seemed to have its own subjectivity. Um, it seemed to have an aliveness uh, to it, which was, which was palpable. I mean, you could miss that, of course, but I felt uh, in, a, in a receptive state... It was undoubtedly alive. So anything that's that's genuine and imaginative um, creates this new new energy. And it's the energy that we really want and need. It's not merely the energy of being energetic. It's a new (coughs) kind of energy. uh, Something alive uh, in nature. And it's alive in the stone or it's alive in the poem. Sometimes you read a poem, very rarely in the and the poem itself is alive. It's, a, it's almost as if the poem is experiencing you, not just you experiencing it. And of course what happens with that aliveness, it seems to make us more alive. So when we read deeply, when we meditate deeply, when we communicate with someone deeply, we become more alive. Um, and that's what we really want, don't, don't we? Um, Bounty once said that if you don't like the language of the transcendental, just just uh, replace it with more life. So there's just more life. Um, when something is touched by, in Auden's phrase, immortal fire, um, there's more life. You become more alive. The object seems more alive. And what's even more mysterious, the relationship between subject and object um, becomes much more difficult to express. Uh, you could say there's almost like a sort of intersubjectivity. You feel a kind of relationship and you can do this really strongly, can't you, in a book? You read a novel, 
And you feel yourself to be in real relationship with the characters. You feel for them and they almost interact with you. So it's difficult to finish sometimes because you don't want to leave them behind. Yeah? Um, so some of, there are some things I want to say about the metaphor of aliveness. But then you have this metaphor of discovery. Um, you feel in the, imagine, the moment of imagination that imagination has been discovered. It's not you. Um, you've discovered it. Uh, Yes, you've discovered it. And in a way, this is an important part of our spiritual practice. You're trying to wait. You're trying to imagine this midnight's moment's forest. It's interesting that it's midnight, isn't it? Because it's this place of quietness, of darkness. Darkness is very often a symbol of um, you know, leaving behind the ordinary world of things to do and that sort of thing. It's just dark. Um, and in that darkness, you discover something. Um, it's probably this is what Keats was trying to get at when he wrote of what he called negative capability. Uh, he said that it was a, a question of being in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. It's a very, very good way of putting it. In a way, an aspect of a medita- meditation is just that, this negative capability, being with uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without an irritable reaching after fact and reason. It's lovely, that word, irritable. We want to pin things down. And we want to pin things down because we want to know that we know. We want to feel that we're the one in charge, where we're absolutely not. But we're deeply insecure in our being. So we have to sort of pin it down with words. And as soon as we pin it down with words, we're sort of superior to it. Um, That irritable reaching after fact and reason. I'm not arguing against fact and reason because they're very, very important. Uh, but we also need to wait for something that goes beyond uh, fact and reason, that transcend them, that don't obliterate them. It's interesting, going through the poem just then, actually when you go through it, it's as tightly argued as any argument, isn't it? If you go through it image by image, every image is exactly what the poet means, and it's as tightly argued as any philosophical argument, it's just arguing it in images, rather than in concepts. Schopenhauer famously said that um, uh, philosophy is doing in abstracto what art is trying to do in concreto. So that the philosopher abstractly tells you about the nature of reality, whereas an artist tries to show it you. Um, I mean, by artist here he means something much deeper than what we mean by artist. So he believed, for instance, that Shakespeare was the greatest mind outside of philosophy, just as Kant was the greatest mind in philosophy. He felt that Kant had used his fantastic uh, reason he had to see how things are in terms of abstract reasoning, but Shakespeare had just shown you it. He'd shown you our human predicament. Um, uh, yeah, he had, so I, I think when we think about imagination, it's, just, it's got the rigour of highly philosophical thought, but it's been trans- wholly translated into music, into meditation, into communication, into image. Yeah. But it's just as rigorous as that and should be able to be explored in that way, in the right way. Of course, you can explore things to death. Um, so yes, we need to discover the imagination. We can never be imaginative. This is something that I've really been wanting to stress. We ourselves are never imaginative. Imagination is always uh, eclipses us for a moment. By its very definition, we can't be imaginative. As soon as we try to be imaginative, 
we're being fantastical, we're entering into fantasy. Because fantasy is just like your ego kind of polished up and given a big hat. Um, imagination has nothing to do with your ego, yeah? It's something much more than that. I could talk a bit more about the metaphor of play, but I'll just make very, two, two very broad things about play, which is that there's something playful about imagination. It can't be willed. It can't be dragooned. You can't write poems, for instance, along ideological grounds. And if you do try to, even if they're the best possible grounds, they never work. I've been trying to write for about three years a long poem, a long spiritual poem. Um, I won't go on about it. Anyway, I've been trying to write it for ages. And I still haven't finished. It's driving me mad. I'm on draft 60 or something, three years later. Um, and uh, I'm trying to have it have it up, you know, to have it up. But actually, as the more I've written it, the more the clearer it is. Actually, the poem wants to get down further and further down. By the end, it's a kind of complete fall away from spiritual life, rather than a. I'd, I was, <laughs> I wanted that, but it doesn't seem to want to do that. It just wants to do that. You see, um, and I don't want it to do that because I don't believe in that. But actually. I'm not in charge, just <laughs> and I just grudgingly think, oh, okay, perhaps I'm better. Anyway, there you go. Um, so there's a, imagination has its own kind of its, a, its own spirit. You can see where the muse comes from; that something else is alive in the darkness, um, and that something else that's alive in the darkness is alive in the darkness of meditation. And uh, we have images for it, the Buddha image particularly. Uh, we have all these different images from the whole of the Buddhist tradition. But there's something else is alive in the darkness. I mean, those images might work for you, they might not. They need to be played with. Uh, they need to be explored. Um, they're not a dot-to-dot guide of imagination. You can't do that. Um, imagination can't be run along uh, lines. Yeah? Uh, this is why actually it's so important in Buddhism to clarify your views. But that's a whole other talk. Um, also there's something unexpected about imagination it often comes in when you're least expecting it uh, you know you're meditating away nothing's happening and you say to yourself nothing's happening suddenly it's happening you think how did that happen <laughs> I remember I was doing my sadhana at one point and uh, I only had 15 minutes because I was laid and so I only had 15 minutes so I just sat down and said, this, this isn't going to I don't know why I'm bothering because suddenly there was the image of glory, straight in front of me. And I said, well, I'm really sorry, I've only got 15 minutes, why have you turned up now? <laughs> you know, why are you, oh dear, you know. But there it was, you know, I don't know how that happened. I was, you know, in the moment before, I would never have imagined it. So often imagination takes place unexpectedly. Um, it appears from the corner of your eye. If you try too hard, you block it. Funny, you do need to try. So you do need to sit down and meditate. You do need to concentrate. Interestingly, um, one of the qualities of the thought fox is it's concentrated. Um, its eye are widening, deepening greenness. So it's this incredible vision of concentration. It's not the concentration that you have on your homework. Not that anybody's at that, that age. But, um, you know, um, it's not that kind of concentration. It's a widening, deepening greenness. Um, so you need to do the work on your side. You need to do the concentration. You need to take up spiritual practice. And then you need... Something needs, something needs to step into that, into that darkness. And then just the metaphor of unity. This is very important as well. Um, I've been reading some articles by contemporary poet Don Patterson. 
some of those articles are going to, I just don't understand the word of, but that's another matter. But he, 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 one of the articles, he says that it's as if a poem is just trying to be one word, that eventually it's just one word, that the poem is so unified that you couldn't take anything out of it and you couldn't put anything else into it. It's just one thing. You can't subtract anything from it. Uh, and again, that's a... You go back to your question. That's a, a really classic sign of the imagination at work in any sphere. Is it's whole. Just as Hughes's poem is whole. Um, you couldn't take anything out of it. Uh, everything knows about everything else. There's a lovely, there's a lovely series of letters um, on Cezanne by Rilke. He went to these exhibitions of Cezanne. And he said it's as if every colour knows about every other colour. That every part of the painting knows about every other part of the painting. And, I mean, Cezanne is, I think, a brilliant example of that. There's an incredible sense of unity. Everything in the painting relates to each other. Um, so when imaginations at work, there's this, there's this complete coming together of things. Uh, Everything, uh, sort of, there's, this, there's a sort of internal ramification. Everything sort of echoes back to itself and creates more and more of itself. Um, and this unity, you can sometimes experience it outside and that unifies you, can't you? You've had that experience when you go and see a concert. I mean, I remember once listening to um, a Mozart piano concerto, like a movement of it, and you'd, sometimes you have this sense with Mozart that is this perfect arc of music that every moment of the music knows about all the other moments. It's said that he, symphonies would come complete to his mind. He'd just have the whole symphony and then he had to write it out in, in time. But the whole symphony would just appear in his mind and then he'd write it out. Sometimes on the back of in his carriage on the way, you know, he'd just write the whole thing out. Uh, so the imagination uni- is a experience as an experience of unification and it's the unification of the person at least in that moment um, it's the expression of a unified psyche only a unified psyche can go deeper and only a u- deeper psyche can fi- unleash the imagination one of the great tasks of spiritual life is this uh, unification of all of our psycho-spiritual energies uh, so that in that unity something can step into it So in any genuine act of imagination, there's always this unity, this sense of coming together. And as I say, that's true of communication, isn't it, when you're just talking to someone. Sometimes you're actually fully interested and fully there, and everything comes together. So much so that when you finish the communication, you can't remember quite what came before or what after, as if the time, and now, and now, and now, is somehow suspended. So it is, it, imagination it is the unification of the person. Imagination is a word for that unification. Um, when you are deeply unified in that way, you have become an instant of imagination. And then finally and lastly, the metaphor of ascent. Um, so this is more difficult to talk about, um, so I've left it the least time to talk about. Um, imagination acts as an intermediary uh, when it is genuine imagination, not fantasy, it acts as an imme- intermediary between who you are just now, your ordinary day-to-day self, and something that goes completely beyond you. Um, it gets difficult to talk about, because when we s- say that, we always want to get the, into this either-or 
of Western life. Either it's outside, therefore God or something like God, or it's inside and it's depth psychology. Um, we're trying to say that there's a third alternative, a mystical third alternative. Something else is alive in the darkness, is that mystical uh, third alternative. Um, yes, and the imagination is this intermediary between, as it were, outside, as it were, inside. So, for instance, it's very clear for this, if you're doing a Buddhana Shmurti practice, I've been doing this a while ago when I was at Gukiloka. Um, it's the way you just bring the Buddha to mind. And, uh, you know, you bring the Buddha to mind in various ways. You just think of him. Um, you imagine him. You imagine him being near you, perhaps. Or you imagine his absence. You feel his absence. And you feel if he could be present in some way. Um, so I, I was doing it one time and uh, imagining him. And what is he absent? Is he present? I don't know. I, he's sort of not quite absent, but not quite present either. And... Uh, I suddenly thought, oh, every time I act, it's such an obvious thought. Sometimes when you think in meditation, the thoughts go deeper. But I just thought, oh, yes, of course, every time I act more kindly, more courageously, more truthfully, uh, more genuinely, I get closer to the Buddha. In that very moment, I'm closer to the Buddha. And as I thought that, suddenly I was. I experienced myself as being closer to the Buddha, or rather the Buddha being closer to me. It just opened a door for his presence, as it were, uh, something else alive in the darkness, stepped into me. Um, not with a hot, sharp smell of stink of fox. Um, but there's something in that, the pungency of that metaphor that's right. It's not that something sweet and gentle and smelling of incense stepped into me either. It's got a pungency. It's got a, even a threateningness in a certain sense, threatening to your ego. It's not you, you see. Uh, and it stepped inside of you, what are you going to do with that? You're suddenly more than anything you thought you were. So suddenly, do you see how my, my thinking was like, you know, putting a, a kite up, and suddenly that kite had been hit by lightning. That, that's what imagination can do. It becomes this image that can be touched by something from beyond the image. Yeah. And we want to say, well, is that beyond, the literal beyond, and we want to say no to that. But we don't want to say no too much, because it's not a literal me either. There's some other alternative. Something else is alive in the darkness. Um, imagination wants to ascend to higher and higher levels. I mean, if you just think of Mozart's experience of the whole symphony appearing in his mind, I can't think what that must mean. Somehow he knows the whole thing, and all he needs to do is write it out. The poet Rilke um, said that there was a time in his life he was writing these sonnets to Orpheus, he wrote 27 sonnets, I think, in three days. Um, many of them are th- considered to be masterpieces. And he said it was ju- he's never experienced such an experience of just dictation. He said all I needed to do was write down what I was told. Um, I just wrote it down, and there they were, 27 sonnets in three days. Uh, many of them were masterpieces. Um, as uh, imagination ascends... Um, you get a greater and greater sense of unity, of aliveness, of uh, spontaneity, even of play. Um, all of that ascends as well, if you see what I mean. Um, so do you see that this is what spiritual life is? Um, this would be a good way of talking about spiritual life because it doesn't... For me, it, it speaks. 
I want to do that. I want to experience my imagination ascending uh, into something being alive, something that's not me. I'm so bored of me. I do the same jokes. I'm kind of this kind of kind of person. I'm all right, you know what I mean? <laughs> nice enough, you know. Um, not as young as I'd like to be. Uh, it's all just me. It's just a, you know, we've all got just a few coins to rattle in our tin, haven't we? And, uh, you know, you come to Manchester, people laugh at your jokes because they've not heard them before. They think, you, think you're a terribly charming person. But then if you heard, if it was every night, you think, actually, can we have somebody else now? Because I've got a bit bored of this, me. It's just the same old tin, coins rattling in your tin. Um, there needs to be some way beyond that few coins in your tin that doesn't then end up with a literal beyond that gets you into all sorts of other problems. Yeah? So let me just finish by reading the poem again and leave us with um, this act of imagination because imagination is an act, it's not a theory. Any theory of imagination is often not very imaginative. Luckily this isn't my theory, it's Coleridge's, it's Bantes, it's Sabutis. So let's try and finish with an act of imagination. The Thought Fox I imagine this midnight moment's forest. Something else is alive, besides the clock's loneliness and this blank page where my fingers move. Through the window I see no star. Something more near, though deeper within darkness, is entering the loneliness. Cold, delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose Touches twig, leaf, two eyes serve as movement that now, and again now, and now, and now, set neat prints into the snow between trees and warily a lame shadow lags by stump and in hollow of a body that is bold to come across clearings. An eye, a widening, deepening greenness, brilliantly, concentratedly coming about its own business, till, with a sudden sharp, hot stink of fox, it enters the dark hole of the head. The window is starless still. The clock ticks. The page is printed. Thank you.